So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be reading here in just a second. Philippians 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, and verse 1. Philippians 3, 17. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing. To hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I often have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, who will one day come in great victory, transforming our lowly bodies to be like your glorious body. May your power that subjects all things to yourself run free and fresh through our lives this very day. And may our little dive into your scriptures this evening be part of our transformation. Amen. You may be seated. So on the back of the worship guide, there's notes there. There's a couple quotes at the very, very end that I'll bring up. But you've got some space there. A lot of points there. There's two. I gave you two. I gave you two points. So that's what we're going to look at. Let me catch you up because you know, we have uh, about a week or so between evening services because we alternate between evening service, care group, evening service, care group. And so sometimes we sleep between meetings, you know, and we forget everything. So let me catch you up. So remember, as Paul's writing Philippians, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who are in a city that is quite proud of its patriotism. It is a colony of Rome. It is a capital city in Philippi, in Macedonia. They loved the fact that they were Roman citizens, that their citizenship was in Rome, where it was preserved and protected. All right, and so the city itself is very patriotic and is also filled with a lot of retired military, a lot of flag-waving, very happy military members who were or, uh, retired military who were hugely patriotic. And so he writes to these Christians in this city. And his concern is about Yodia and Syntyche, the two gals, sisters in the church, who are at odds with each other and the, the stress that it is causing in the church. And so from the very beginning, Paul's emphasizing the allness of his letter. I'm writing to all of you. I pray to all of you. I leave none of you out. There's none who are my greater favorites than others. You're all in this together. And I pray for you together. In fact, I have the very affections of Christ for you. And the gift of Christ is the fact that he has made this partnership, this koinonia in this church that is joined with me. And so all the way through the first chapter, he's capitalizing on that. Through. And then the centerpiece of Philippians is chapter 127 through 211. It is the heart of the letter. I want you to live out your citizenship, Paul says. When you're standing firm with one another, side by side, with one spirit, shields locked like good legionnaires, 
shields locked together as you stand firm together on the same team against evil. And it will be, therefore, uh, a mark that you are God's people and that they are under judgment as you stand firm together. And so, if there's any consolation, chapter 2, any comfort of love, stand firm, be of one mind together, because you have the same mind that Christ had, who, being in the very form of God, did not consider robbery of evil of God, but made himself of no reputation. He even took upon himself the form of a servant, and humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore the Father has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven or on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the heart of this whole letter. We can be united together because we have the same mind that Christ had for us and for our salvation. And then Paul just continues to work that out through the rest of chapter 2, even giving us examples. Take example of Timothy. Look at the way he is. Look at the way uh, Paphroditus, your own minister, is. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And then he comes to chapter 3, and Pastor West mentioned this last week, where we have no reason to be proud of our resumes. Right? That does not impress God. Our curriculum vitae and resume does not impress God. What really matters is that we have Jesus. And his righteousness becomes ours and puts us on God's good side in spite of all that we deserve. Woo! And then comes the verses we're now looking at. As Paul is continuing this and he's about to run into Yodian Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 2, he's tying up most of these themes to get ready to talk to Yodian Syntyche. So chapter 3, 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, two points. There's one purpose and two destinies. One purpose and two destinies. That's the two points. So here's the first one. One purpose. Notice that in verse 17, Paul comes back around to a thought that does sometimes trouble us. Notice how he begins verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. That bugs us. We don't like that. We, none of us in our right mind would tell somebody else to imitate us. But here's the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying, imitate me. He says this all over 1 Corinthians. He says this in other letters. Imitate me. Follow the way I'm, I'm acting. Look at the way I'm moving. Follow along with me, right? Imitate me. In fact, he says um, in verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Not only has the apostle placed himself, they clear back to chapter 1, the apostle has not only placed himself up front as a role model in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, of how to live in the face of adversity, he is also, chapter 3, what Pastor West was talking about two weeks ago, he has set himself out as a model of how not to be proud and not to be puffy over our performance but rather pleased with Christ's gracious gift of righteousness. And when you get to chapter 4, he's going to do it again two more times. He will put himself forward as a model of godliness. You know, here's how you should think. You should be thinking about what's pure and right and all that stuff as you have seen the example in me, chapter 4, verse 9. And then in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, he will set himself as a model of contentment. I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's not that Paul is, thinks that he is the gold standard of godly wholeness. 
but rather that Christ, as he says back in chapter 3, verse 12, that Christ has gotten hold of him and turned his world right side up and right side out. Not that I have already obtained this, chapter 3, 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. My friends, this is really important, okay? There is a difference between being a model that people imitate who is following Jesus and being a model that wants people to think about you, right? Do you understand the difference, right? So one is already captured by Jesus and his whole goal of being a model is so that you get closer to Jesus. That's his whole goal. And the other one is the one that wants you to think about them. Look at my achievements and how I have succeeded. Have you ever heard that in a speech where somebody gets up and, and it's supposed to be a Christian gathering? I'm thinking of a particular graduation ceremony a couple years back at a Christian college in the area where the guy got up and he told you all the reasons why he was a great guy. I mean, from the beginning of his speech to the very end of his speech, all of his accomplishments. And I thought, where's Jesus in this meeting? That's our only hope, right? What Paul is doing is he is really pointing at, you can follow me as an example because I'm following Jesus. That's the crucial distinction. Everybody got that? Picking up what I'm putting down? Good, okay. And so my friends, every one of us in here is an example. Every one of us is an example. You've heard me say it before. We are either good examples or we are bad examples, right? My kids got tired of hearing me say that to them all the time. We're either good examples or we're bad examples, but we are never not examples. And so Paul, in grace-wrought humility, owns the fact that he's an example, and he gently embodies it as we should. He even goes on later in Titus, and he tells Titus, be a model of good works, chapter 2, verse 7 in Titus. Right? We're all examples. Um, and that's extremely important, and I find this really helpful. From everything that I've read from psychologists and others, we were created to be mimickers, right? We mimic. We mimic one another. So Wes told you that terrible story, which is funny because I'm sitting back there squirming when he was telling the story because I do the same thing. And when he gets around his country bumpkin friends and family in Tahlequah, and they start speaking this really thick accent, southern accent, before long, it starts coming out of Wes, right? We, I do the same thing. You do the same thing. Whether you know it or not, we are created as mimickers because we're creating the image of God. And so who are we to mostly to mimic? Yeah, right. That's who we're made to model after, be modeled after. So it's very fitting that in this, Paul says, okay, my fellow Christian mimickers, follow me as an example as I'm following Jesus. Come along with me. That's what is going on here. And so every good leader knows that he or she leads from the front. Every good leader leads from the front. A good leader following Jesus says more often than not, come with me, not go do. Come with me. And so Paul invites the Philippian believers to follow suit. And that's why we look at chapter 4, verse 1. That's why he keeps moving along here when he says what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now here he's changing his metaphor. Earlier, when, you get to, when we start looking at verse 18 and following, 
it's going to be a lot about walk, which is just another term for lifestyle. Walk. He changes metaphor from walk to standing firm, but it's the same idea. This is a life. Stand firm in the Lord by walking this way, by living this lifestyle. And notice, I'm going to get to the point here in a second on this, but notice how much Paul loves this church. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. How much does he love this church? What does he say? Whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Whom I long for. And your mind goes back to chapter 1 and verse 4 and following, where he talks about his longing for these Christians. Right? He says, in fact, when he says in chapter 1, verse 8, he yearns for them with the splank, you know, the guts, the bowels of Christ. He yearns for them from deep down inside himself. He longs for them. In fact, they make him joyful. Chapter 1, verse 4, they make him joyful even in his prayers. And he is glad, chapter 2, verse 17, he is glad and rejoices with them. And so his affections for them comes to the service here in chapter 4, verse 1. Whom I love and long for my joy and crown. Now, you should know, and probably most of us intuitively know this, it makes it so much easier to lead from the front when you love like this and when that love is reciprocated. It's so much easier to lead when you love like this and that love is reciprocated. But then Paul, who loves them deeply, he encourages them with this phrase, stand firm thus in the Lord. And it's interesting, he says stand firm because he only says it one other time in Philippians. He only says it back in chapter 1, verse 27. And there, standing firm, holding the line, that's the title of the sermon series, standing firm has everything to do with the unity of a congregation. You go back to chapter 1, verse 27, he puts it there. In fact, it's identical in the Greek. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Basically, Paul's singular purpose, his whole follow me, here's my example, stand firm thus in the Lord in the way that I've modeled for you, all of that is, um, is to develop how these Christians can stand united together, come what may. Come heretics, come harm, come high water. They can hold the line together. United we stand, divided we fall, right? So this is the stand firm thus. This is the follow me. Everything Paul does is meant to build this church, this congregation together. And that, my friends, gives Yodia and Syntyche, who will be mentioned in chapter 4, verse 2, which we'll pick up next time, gives them lots of reasons to become reconciled to one another and to become re-glued to each other. Oh yeah, we should stand firm together in this, which is the model of Paul who is modeling Jesus. Oh, yes, it gives them every motivation to be reconciled to each other, to be reglued to each other. And it gives all of the Euodias and Syntyches of God's church in every age serious motivation toward pulling together rather than ripping apart. Right? You've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. Here you go. Ready? Worldliness is to segregate. Worldliness rips apart, loves to divide everybody over everything. 
from political parties to race to whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask or you get vaccinated or you don't get Anything we can divide on, we will. That's worldliness. That's one aspect of worldliness. And notice that the gospel church is actually the counter to that and the answer to that. Drawn together by the grace of God alone, in Christ alone, despite what we deserve. We're in this together all the way through. And so there's, that's his one purpose of what he's writing for. He brings it up here. There's one more reason we should stand firm in the Lord together, and it's sandwiched between verse 17 and chapter 4, verse 1. It's sandwiched. It's verse 18, 19, 20, and 21. The two destinies, and that's where we're going, our second point. The two destinies. Paul now shows that there's a whole world of difference between two different groups of people because there's a whole world of difference between their focuses. So the first band, verse 18 and 19, the first band of people, they probably want to be known as believers. These may actually be the folks that uh, are mentioned back up in chapter 3, verse 2, the Jews who are the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. It's possible that it's them. But these are people who want to be known in some way as followers of Christ. They want to be known as followers of Christ, but their focus, their attention is somewhere else. It's on the wrong thing. It's on themselves. Their focus is in the wrong place. It's on themselves. And so notice how Paul puts it, as he says in verse 19, their God is their belly. You see that phrase, that statement? Their God is their belly, verse 19. Now, what does that mean? Well, that Greek word belly is koilia, and it can mean, throughout the New Testament in the Greek, it can mean the physical place of human anatomy, that place of yours that got really, really full on Thursday. Right? It can mean a stomach, someone's stomach, but think about it for a minute. It becomes an analogy for other things. Think about when your stomach is empty, what does it do? It starts getting your attention. Hello, we're empty down here. Please fill me up like muy pronto or whatever, however you say that, right? Like fill me up now. And then if it begins to take over, it's constantly on your mind and nagging you and pulling at you physically. It becomes analogous, becomes analogous to other basic bodily desires that tug on us. That these appetites and hungers and desires and ambitions that we crave to satisfy, where desire and appetite and ambition come to rule us and dominate us and govern us. Let me give you a little illustration. I have a friend, I won't tell you his name. We'll call him, um, we'll call him um, George. I don't know any Georges. Do you know any Georges? This is a good name, George. Oh, you know George. This is not that George. This is a friend of mine. He's in another state. He's a very big man. If we put me next to him, he would dwarf me by two to three sizes, right? He's a really big guy. And he said to me one time, he said, Mike, he said, some guys struggle with pornography, pictures, right? And you understand why that's bad. He says, but I don't have a problem with that, with that stuff. My pornography is the deli store. When I walk in and see those jelly donuts, I lust for them. That was an eye-opener. It's the same sin, just manifested differently. 
It's where desire is trying to get a hold of him and he knows it. And so he has to fight day and night against that desire to go down that road and have those, those, that food, for example, but it's the same sin. So the idea here is that their God is their koilea, their belly, is their appetites, their hungers, their desires, even their ambitions coming to dominate them and rule over them. In fact, Paul will use a similar, uh, the, the belly picture when you get to Romans 16, and it's a different set of appetites. Listen to Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own koilea, their own appetites, bellies. They serve their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Very interesting. Some people crave success at every cost, at winning at every cost. And they will split families, and they will split churches, and they will split denominations, so that they're always the ones who can say, just listen to them, we're on the right side. And they have more satisfaction in splitting and splintering than they do in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. But it's their appetite, it's their desire, their hunger for that that has gotten them. Further, my friends, Paul goes on here in chapter 317, he says that they glory in their shame. If you were listening to that Hosea passage, that same phrase shows up in Hosea 4, verse 7. They, they are, turn their glory into shame. They glory in their shame. You go, well, what in the world is that about? Well, they boast and they brag in their depravity in some way. Very possibly because they want to be known as some kind of follower of Jesus, then they probably are very cocky in their Christian liberty. I'm putting quotation marks there. In their Christian liberty. Maybe because what they're doing is actually putting Christian liberty out front as a cover for their sin that's underneath that. Because they really serve this sin, but they place the, the billboard of Christian liberty out front. You say, well, where did you get that from? I got it from Scripture. Galatians 5, verse 13, or, or 1 Peter chapter 2, 16. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 2, 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. They glory in their shame. It's like the preacher. I mentioned this in the new members class today. It's like the preacher. Some of you will remember this. Big name TV preacher who, I think it was in the 90s, got up and said in public, God told me to divorce my wife and to marry my godly secretary because she, that's the right thing to do. This is the will of the Lord. Uh, dude, that's not what God told you. Because he told you all the way from Genesis to Revelation what you're supposed to do. Right? What's he doing? He's covering over his sin with this sanctimonious talk. He was glory in his shame. I'm not going to ask if you remember that statement, but it, it was out there. And so pulling this all together, these, this band, was, they were proud of their peccadillos. They were... Uh, whether their peccadillos, their, their favorite sins was to shatter fellowships or families or to flaunt their own lifestyles, 
They strut around claiming that they, they are on God's special team and you can't do anything about it. And if you try to do anything about it, then you're the ones, they turn the tables, you're the ones who are plainly intolerant. You're the ones who are plainly bigoted and hateful. And the reason their focus is off kilter, Paul tells you in verse 19 here, with minds set on earthly things. Minds set on earthly things. They equate who they are with what they want. They equate who they are with what they want and what they do. Their minds are set on earthly things. Notice what Paul says about them in verse 18. This crew lives, it walks, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now you hear that phrase and you think in Philippians, where else has the cross of Christ come up in Philippians? Oh yes, in chapter 2, 5 through 11. And what was the cross of Christ about? The cross of Christ was here is the eternal Son of God who became man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And what does he do? He doesn't flaunt his divinity. Instead, he clothes himself not with satisfying himself, but he clothes himself with servitude. He's a servant. And what does he do? He humbles himself. He's not proud. He's not boastful. He humbles himself to the point of death even the death of the cross. He humbles himself to obedience to the Father. I never did anything that the Father didn't command, he says in John. He humbles himself to obedience to the Father. Oh, this is the cross of Christ. And so these are clearly on the polar opposite of that. They want nothing to do with humility. They want nothing to do with obedience. They want to flaunt all they have. They want to make themselves something they're not. They want to sit at the top of the pack they're up here. They just ask them. They boast about it. They are truly enemies of the cross of Christ. It's a lifestyle and a life practice. They might have, you might even have heard them say, well, God made me this way. And so their destiny, and their, their destiny is dismal. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 18. Their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. But how does Paul and how does the Spirit of God who is inspiring Paul feel about their destiny? Again, verse 18. And now I tell you even with what? Tears. I tell you even with tears. Nothing to gloat over, nothing to celebrate here. They are going to their eternal destruction. That is not a happy, you know, clapping celebration. That, my friends, is their doom and devastation. So that's the one band of people. But then there's the other team, and it's verse 20 and 21, and notice the, the contrastive statement, if you want to call it that. It's verse, it's verse 20, it begins with but. So after saying all of this, here's what I'm telling you about this other team, and here's what they do, and all of that, but we, our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, here's the other team. That he's talking about it. And notice that this other team is focused, its focus and its attention is elsewhere, and it's in, it ends in a totally different destiny. Now notice that they do not, verse 20 and 21, they do not deny the goodness of the body, they do not des- deny human desires, but their aim is elsewhere. Our citizenship, but our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, what it means everywhere. Where is your citizenship? 
Where's your civil citizenship? Right? It's in the U.S., right? But it's, it's probably, if you're from Oklahoma, guess where you're going to find it? It's downtown at the, whatever it's called, where they keep a record of your birth. So your citizenship is there. It is preserved there. Understand? It is preserved there. You can always go there and go get a copy of your citizenship. Right? And so these Philippians would have appreciated this language. Our citizenship is in heaven. Because what he's saying is our citizenship is at the throne of God. Our citizenship is in the palace of Christ. Our citizenship is recorded where humans cannot destroy it and no government decree can take it from us. It is recorded and secured come what may. Our citizenship is in heaven. Like I said, that thought would have spoken volumes to the Philippian Christians because they and their fellow citizens took great delight in being citizens of Rome where the emperor kept their citizenship safeguarded and settled. And their citizenship meant something. If somebody had come to Philippi and tried to conquer Philippi, they were confident and secure that they could petition Caesar and he would come and run to them and rescue them. He would send forces to rescue them. This would have meant a lot to the Christians. And so we, as citizens of Christ's dominion, we look there, our citizenship is in heaven, we look there... And we await from there a Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. A Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting language that he's talking about citizenship. Because there was somebody sitting on an earthly throne at that time who called himself Soter Kyrios, Savior and Lord. Anybody happen to know who that might have been? Caesar. Caesar called himself that. And notice what Paul is saying. No, 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 no. Jesus is the Soter Kyrios, Savior and Lord. And so we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as He will one day come sweeping in victorious and triumphant, we know that all of our affections and attentions and attractions and ambitions and even our bodies and our bellies and even the bruises we may suffer for being followers of Christ, He will transform one day that we may be like Him. Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. And He will do this by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. What a great statement. You know, earlier back in chapter 1, Paul was talking about dying. He says, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. But I don't know which to do. Do I continue to live, which is great things for you, or do I die to go be with the Lord? Well, when Paul was talking in chapter 1, he's talking about something that's temporary. When we die, that's not permanent. We're, we're going to go be with the Lord, our non-physical part. Because guess what happens to our body? Anybody remember the shorter catechism on this? Yep, it remains in union with Christ as it is buried in the grave, waiting for the resurrection. So chapter 321 is talking about the day of resurrection. When Christ returns, who is no longer subject to misery and mortality, he who is raised from the dead, body, bloods, bo body, blood, bone, toenails, and hair, will come and raise us. Raise us bodily and transform us bodily so that we will one day no longer be subject to misery and mortality. Woo! Somebody, right? Isn't that exciting? That's great news. That's exactly what he's talking about. And so in this passage, Paul's centerpiece of the letter, chapter 127 to 211, keeps coming back up here. 
Christ, who humbled himself in obedience to the Father at the cross, was raised from the dead and is now given a name above all names, and all knees will, will bow to him and confess that he is Lord. Some will confess that he is Lord with clenched fists and gritted teeth. And others will say, ah, yes, Jesus is Lord. Some will be saved. Good news for some is bad news for others, right? All of this is coming back. So my friends, our citizenship in the kingdom of Christ is by grace alone. That's the first part of chapter 3 that Pastor West talked about. It's by grace alone. We, got, we became citizens not because we were great people, because we had an awesome resume. We became citizens because God made us citizens through His Son, Jesus. That's part of what imputed righteousness is all about. We've now been made citizens. We're on God's good side. We've been made citizens of Christ, of the kingdom of Christ by grace alone. And so therefore, as he's saying here in verse 20 and 21, our destiny, glorious and great as it is, is also by grace alone. Our destiny is also by grace alone. So there's no strutting about. I can't imagine on the day that you'll ever hear these words on the day of judgment. Well, sure, I deserve to be here. No strutting about. Got a lot of celebrating. I have no idea how I got here, but amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. So because this is our destiny, by grace alone and Christ alone, in spite of what we deserve, then, chapter 4, verse 2, you Odian Sintike are being put on notice. They should actually prepare for that moment. Well, you know, for all of her failings and all of her foibles and all her flaws, well, you know, Jesus is going to come back and turn her wrongs to rights. And he's actually going to openly acknowledge and acquit her on the day of judgment. Hmm, maybe we need to be friends now. Oh, praise the Lord, he's going to do that for me too. Woo! Right? It gives them notice right then it's time to actually be reconciled at this moment. To embrace one another now with a view to them. And so let me try to dock this boat. To bring this all to a close for today, just two things. First off, we need to recognize that God's design, that by God's design and with God's grace, we are expected and we are empowered to embody gospel living that will be exemplary to others. So back in chapter 2, verse 13, 12 and 13. Right When he tells us that uh, it is God who works in us both to will and do work for his good pleasure. Yes, we are expected and we are empowered by the grace of God to embody gospel living that would be exemplary to others. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Come with me. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, and this is your first quotation, your sermon notes. Quote, only when non-Christians see the power of the gospel in people they know are they likely to respond to it? Now, I'm going to spread that out a little bit more because I think it needs to be bigger based on Philippians. I'm going to say Christian and non-Christians. Only when Christians and non-Christians see the power of the gospel in people they know are they likely to respond to it. My friends, we have a bunch of kids in Sunday school. A ton of little kids and young kids and some teenagers in Sunday school. Think of that statement. 
as they see, as they only when these, uh, when Christians see the power, uh, only when non-Christians see the power of the gospel, and people like you and me, and even when Christians see the power of the gospel, and people like us, will they respond to it? Our kids are going to be growing up, and they're going to be remembering you examples of the gospel, and it will mean something to them. I think it's a great way to put it. Secondly. As the late Ed Clowney once put it in his book, The Church, and the PCA pastor, theologian, the book's called The Church. It's a great little book. Um, it's on page 16. I know exactly where it's at in my book. I've got it highlighted. I can tell you right. I can go straight to it in my book. But he put it this way. You think about the world that wants to rip apart and what he's talking about here. Increasingly, the ordered fellowship of the church becomes the sign of grace for the warring factions of a disordered world. Only as the church binds together those whom selfishness and hate have cut apart will its message be heard and its ministry of hope to the friendless be received. And that, my friends, is what Philippians is about. As we are drawn together more and more tightly by the grace of God, it is a gospel embodiment in the eyes of a world that loves to rip apart. And at some point, people in that situation get exhausted and they start running for refuge. And where are they going to run? The churches, hopefully, that are weathering the storm together as a sign of grace to the war and factions of our world. And that, my friends, is within our reach we are gospel-empowered to do just that. So let's pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, for the letter of Philippians. We are grateful, Lord, that you remind us that we really are examples. We're good examples or we're bad examples. We are examples. I pray that every one of us, grabbed by Christ, Start calling others. Come, follow me as I follow Jesus. Come with me. Lord, I pray that you would help us. You would help us as a church to continue to grow closer and closer to each other at the foot of the cross in the embrace of the nail-pierced hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. Drawn together, building and supporting each other up, holding the line together. And it really would be a means of grace, a sign of grace to all the warring factions of our world. Lord, thank you that we have this letter. Thank you for what you are reminding us of and how you are drawing us more deeply into this. In Jesus' name, amen.